The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll be talking about our picks for the best TV shows and performances of the year. That's coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673 or email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller seitz Hey, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hi, guys. Hi. Welcome back. <laughs> so... We ran our Vulture TV Awards last week on Vulture.com. And this year we took kind of a more pure approach where we don't have a ton of awards we're giving out. We decided to do kind of longer, more critical essays on three major categories, best show, best actor, and best actress. And I thought we could start off by talking about your choices for those. And maybe we can get a little drum roll going or something. (laughs) (laughs) The best actor of the year is... Who invited Questlove into the room? (laughs) Wow. Uh, Remy Malek from uh, uh, Mr. Robot. Excellent choice, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And this is from a show that I um, admire. Uh, I, I, it wasn't on my top ten list uh, last year. I loved the first half of it, and I felt like it became a little more conventional in its second half. But I love the look of it. I love the sound of it. But mostly I love his performance. I love his character, and uh, but just his acting. And all of the different things that Malick is called upon to do uh, and how well that he does them. You know, that was sort of number one for me. And And part of it was the physical component, like just the way he – the way he carries himself, like his body language, the way he plays this guy with a social anxiety disorder who can sort of overcome that if he's in a situation where he can tr- he can trot out his technical expertise to master a situation. Like you sense that there's a confident person inside of this not-so-confident facade. But then there's also the voiceover and, and good voiceover acting is not as easy as maybe a, a, a non-actor would think it is. Like you've really got to – You've really got to think about it as a separate but related performance, Mm -hmm. you know, especially if you've got an an unreliable narrator, which you have here. Like this is a guy who's telling us – he's really telling us the story like in the way that like a a lot of Stanley Kubrick's lead characters do. And he's confiding in us and and it just has a different emotional temperature from this guy that we see on screen who is multifaceted. Like if you took away the voiceover, you'd still have a very rich performance. But you add the voiceover and you've got something – yeah, too. And the know. voiceover voiceover can be can go so wrong, especially with something like that, where it's kind of hokey in a way. It was like constantly telling you his thoughts, and you can imagine like it just going so badly. I don't know. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and especially because he's sort of like he's like the narrator of a novel. He's like mm-hmm. the narrator of a of a of a novel that is not just about what his character is going through, but it's sort of it's sort of sketching this entire world, and he's. He's identifying particular character types, particular social types. He's 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 commenting on particular kinds of social interactions, and he's sort of he's hanging these little labels on them. And um, 
if it were not done just right, if the delivery were not just right, it would become insufferable immediately. Right. That happened on Bloodline in season one, I think, and mm-hmm. they completely cut it in season two. And Yeah. Yeah. And this is a rare show where, you know, I, I often when a, a show decides to do narration, they do it in the pilot just to get mm-hmm. just to get you up to speed faster. It's like, that's my brother Charlie. You know, I saved him from drowning when he was eight. You know, like right, that kind of right, thing. And this right. show doesn't do that. It doesn't do that. Um, but his his narration, I think, is as good as any movie narration that I've ever heard. And and it's not just the writing; it's the delivery of it. It's the it's that it's the tone of it. It's that sort of con- that that conspiratorial. Um, you're the only person I can trust. Kind of tone. You know, like mm-hmm. you really feel like you're his best friend, and he's telling you all of this. Yeah, I mean, you know? he starts it off by saying. Hello, old hello, friend. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the title of the pilot. Right. Hello, friend. Hello, friend. That's lame. Maybe I should give you a name. But that's a slippery slope. You're only in my head. We have to remember that. Shit. This actually happened. I'm talking to an imaginary person. What I'm about to tell you is top secret. A conspiracy bigger than all of us. There's a powerful group of people out there that are secretly running the world. I'm talking about the guys no one knows about, the guys that are invisible. The top 1% of the top 1%, the guys that play God without permission. And now I think they're following me. The entire world is shaped according to Elliot's subjective perceptions. And so, you know, the corporation that works – that his company works for is only referred to as Evil Corps. Mm-hmm. And, and that's um, – Elliot has assigned him that name and all of the characters who appear in this narrative uh, call it that, including people who work for the corporation. You know, like there will be a board <laughs> meeting of guys and they'll, and they'll refer to themselves as Evil Corp. Um, and you buy all of this because – Really, like he – his narration, his performance is, is, is the frame that is containing this picture. And, and I can't really offhand think of another television show that does that as single-mindedly as this show mm-hmm. does. So it's a tremendous responsibility just from a technical standpoint and he really nails it. And I would say that his um, performance – and this is not to take anything away from Sam Esmail and all of the other people involved with making the show and all of his co-stars. But his performance, like if I'm trying to look for a comparison point, it's not another actor. It's like a composer, like in the way that years and years ago, uh, we got to hear the original um, score that Alex North wrote for 2001, which of course ended up being scored with an amalgam of different classical cues. And when you heard that Alex North music, suddenly you went, oh, my God, that would have been a completely different movie. And obviously changing the casting of a lead character on a television show, it would change the show. But here I feel like it would be like the equivalent of having a different composer involved in a movie. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's how much his performance does to affect your, your ability to accept what happens on the show your ability to interpret what happens on the show and how you feel about it, what you think about it. Like it's all coming through his voiceover, his face, his eyes, his body, everything. I mean you also talked a bit about, you know, the fact that he's a person of color. Yeah. And I think that's an important point to bring up just in how they cast this role. It is very important and and they have uh, Christian Slater cast as the title character. And of course Christian Slater played a lot of rebel characters. 
and most notably in Pump Up the Volume. And I think his character on on uh, Mr. Robot is is at least partly like Hard Harry, the DJ he played in that high school movie in <laughs> like 80, what is it, 1990? I can't even remember. Um, but a lot of the rebel characters in American movies are white guys. The characters who challenge the system, undermine the system, subvert it in some way are white guys. And so um, general audiences like women, people of color can conceivably associate with them, but they have to make an imaginative leap to do it. They have to decide to accept this rebel white guy as their representative. And it would have been very easy to do this show with a white male actor in the lead. And they didn't. And they went they went with a guy who is of Egyptian descent. And then they went even further with it, and I think that I think that really puts it over the top. Like I think this would have been a contender for one of the best performances on TV uh, recently. Even if they, you know, if if you can imagine the same guy, uh, you know, the same performance being given by a white actor, which frankly I can't. You know, even if we're just technically on the same level, mm-hmm. you know, I would say yeah, this this is up there. But the fact that they cast an actor of color, I think, really makes it special because this this character is alienated. And when you cast an, an actor who is of Middle Eastern heritage, it's not abstract anymore. Like you're not just taking their word for it. You're not have to say you don't have to. You don't look at it and say like, for example, Don Draper on Mad Men. You believe that he is alienated from mainstream society, but it's not on the level of say the African American elevator operator at the at the building where he works. Right. You know, it's just different. It's like it's real for that guy in a will in a way that it's not real for Don. And it's real for Elliot on this show. And when you see this guy um, in his hoodie, he almost always wears a hoodie, which has become an, uh, an item of clothing that is a political statement. And the way that he talks about society, there's a wonderful montage um, early on in the show where he has decided that he's going to try to be normal. I'm going to be more normal now. Maybe Shayla could even be my girlfriend. I'll go see those stupid Marvel movies with her. I'll join a gym. I'll heart things on Instagram. I'll drink vanilla lattes. I'm going to lead a bug-free life from now on. Anything to protect my perfect maze. It's a level of mockery where if somebody like uh, a Christian Slater or Robert Downey Jr. back in the day had delivered the same monologue, you would have laughed at it. But you, it wouldn't have had the same power that it has when you're seeing a, an, an actor of Middle Eastern heritage saying these words. And it does kind of dovetail with the larger themes of the show, which Sam Esmail has talked about, was in large part inspired by the Arab Spring and people who were using technology to kind of empower themselves. Yes. And that Elliot's character is in part based on that concept. Right, uh, right, yes. So if you, you know, I think he said at first he was, you know, looking at everybody, like he was mainly looking at white guys for the show, but then he kind of, you know, found Rami and... I think it had to end up becoming a conversation with the network where it was like, will they, will people be able to sympathize with a character who doesn't look white? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I was reminded of um, years and years ago, and I, and I won't say the name of the movie because it's, you know, <clears throat> I don't want to dredge anything up for the filmmaker, but there was a, a really good movie that I saw. It was a science fiction film, and the director was Asian American, but uh, all uh, the characters were white. He cast all white actors, and I asked him why he did that, and he said, because if I cast Asian Americans in this movie, then suddenly it would become a movie about the Asian American experience, and I wanted it to be universal. Mm -hmm. 
And it's very sad that he felt that he had to do that. I understand why he did it because, you know, as a critic, you know, I'm very familiar with the knee-jerk intellectual habits of critics and I think he's right. I think that I think that there would have, we would have seen a bunch of like we would we didn't call them that ten years ago, but like you know think pieces and hot takes about how this movie is about the Asian American experience, and in his mind it really wasn't. Um, and I think that probably the same struggle went on in the mind of the showrunner Mr. Robot when he was deciding who to cast in that yeah. part. It's like, well, if I, I put a guy who looks like me in that part, suddenly it becomes autobiographical and it gains all of these racial and political associations that it wouldn't have if it was another white dude. But he didn't do that. And I'm curious how much they thought about it in terms of how much they addressed that because they really don't on the show. You know, you see, a hint, you see a hint of his background when you see a photo of his mother and you yeah. – can tell that she's of Middle Eastern descent. Yeah, but, and you, you do, but also there's little things buried in the right, show there's, too. There are little things. I think some people, there was kind of a small black backlash. An Iranian actor wrote an essay on BuzzFeed about how, you know, he wished this show kind of dealt with his heritage more. Um, but I think, you know, I think there is something to that, like, if they did deal with it, it would become a different kind of show where they would right. – they're able to get at these issues without necessarily overtly saying it. Well, and also this is a character who is not he, – he is he is half Caucasian and half um, right. Arab. Right, You know, so that's a different set of things and he, you know, he grew up in the United States. He's Ameri- he is completely Americanized in every sort of stereotypical way. Right. Um, so he's kind of inside and outside at the same time. So I feel like the show's portrayal of him is true to that. I think so too, especially for a loner type – who yeah, for, isn't as involved in maybe a community of people who might you might get a sense of who his family is. You know, this is a person who was cut off from his culture even because he is right. a loner. I think this I think this is a great like the word iconic is overused a lot, but I think it really applies here. Like I think this is a performance that is up there with um, Leonard Nimoy's performance as Mr. Spock and and Bruce Lee and pretty much any movie Bruce Lee did. Like this is the kind of performance that ends up on a poster hanging on the wall of some kid's dorm because he feels like this person understands them. Well, I think you've made your case, Matt. <laughs> that was very persuasive. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we move on to Best Actress? Carrie Coon from The Leftovers. Yes. Uh, I have to say, I found this process of choosing someone challenging because there are so many good performances and trying to decide, you know, what makes one person's choices, quote unquote, superior to another person's choices. um, It's all obviously very subjective. Um, But I ultimately chose Carrie Coon, one, because – I feel like her performance has been a little more under the radar. I feel like The Leftovers has been a little more under the radar, not with critics, but certainly with the broader public. And so I kind of wanted to shine a light on somebody who isn't getting as much attention as as some other people are. But also, she has this quality that I don't see in a lot of other actresses where she just exudes this sort of command and power when she's on the screen. And all of the people on The Leftovers, all of the other actors are really, really excellent. But I feel like when she's in a scene, you can sense that she's elevating it for everybody around her. And I would say she even elevates things for me as a viewer. Like I I just – she makes me pay closer attention um, to everything that she's doing, to what's going on in her mind. She's so good at being um, 
just quiet and listening, which is one of the most important things that an actor does and something that, you know, the average person maybe doesn't notice as much because it's it's the less showy thing to do. You know, there's a scene uh, in the final episode of the season where she's listening to something on the radio and just you're watching her absorb this information and you're just seeing all of all this stuff happen on her face that's telling you her thought process without her having to do anything other than just be present. I love that about her um, performance. She just has this also an amazing ability to kind of go up and down the spectrum of emotions really, really quickly, um, it, but in a way that doesn't feel like she's showing off, um, in a way that just feels very natural to what the character is. Um, again, another scene where she she thinks that everybody has, has departed again. 911, what's your emergency? Did, did it happen again? Ma'am, can you repeat? Uh, I can't find my... Uh, my boyfriend is in here. Did it, did it happen? Ma'am, no, no, not the fucking earthquake, not the fucking earthquake. Did the, did the, are the people gone? Are they gone? <laughs> and then uh, Justin Thoreau's character re-enters the scene and she's immediately relieved. And then like a second later, she's really angry because, hey, you, you, you knocked me off my foundation here. I don't, I don't like this. Um, and that whole sequence of emotions is, is like a minute, minute and a half. Um, which is a lot of gear shifting, um, but she does it in a way that just feels so real. You can sense that struggle to keep everything under control, but she could break at any moment. The moment you kind of meet her in season one, there's something about her. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Like, I think you you see her through the eyes of uh, Kevin's daughters who are, like, spying on her. They've heard about her, you know, because she's lost a bunch of people. But there's also a quality where they're like, who is this woman? Right. And you kind of feel that as a viewer as well. Right. I mean, in in season two, her entire – her character, Nora – she just wants – she wants to move to this new town. She wants to start over um, and she really wants to move on from, from the trauma that she's experienced and having lost her entire family. Uh, and every choice that Carrie Coon makes, I think, is conveying that, that desperation to just be in control, to have – to frame her worldview and then to maybe frame um, the worldview of Erica Murphy, her, her neighbor, uh, to just maintain a sense of equilibrium and every once in a while something – that she can't predict, um, like Kevin being missing all of a sudden or uh, Erica asking her a question about why her family departed, hits her that she can't anticipate and you see her shatter for a minute and then try to bring herself back together. Um, It feels to me like you're watching sort of what it feels like to be alive in this country right now where any day there can be a mass shooting or just – the nonsense that's going on with our presidential election or just this sense of like the world has gone nuts and how do I keep my shit together? And I feel like her performance is an illustration of that. I love that scene you also mentioned with her listening to the radio and Yeah, that's a great scene. Yeah. Yeah. You see the wheels turning where she's like, How does this situation apply to my life? Am I doing what they're doing is, you know, like she's just trying to kind of make sense of her life. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's this, you know, a radio program where someone is talking about his wife has, has, they're no longer together. They wanted to have a baby because they had lost their child in, in the departure. And, um, and she didn't think she was ready. And the host of the radio program says, well, you know, she probably wasn't 
wasn't ready, um, but you know what would fix her is, is Jesus. And you can see her thinking because that's, that's what she has done. Is she has adopted this baby. She's with you know a new partner, and she is trying to build this new life for herself. And the idea that someone's saying to her, you know what, you might not be ready for this. You might be in denial. And then to hear that the only way to fix this hole is with Jesus, that doesn't sit well with her. And so she just walks across the room and just picks the radio up and smashes it on the ground says, fix that, Jesus. And every time she says, fix that, Jesus, I crack up because it is very funny. (laughs) But it's also such a window into who she is. And there's this real genuine anger. When we didn't talk about the scene, one of the signature scenes of that season, which is the confrontation between her and Regina King, Mm -hmm. um, which like so much on the show – takes place largely in, in close-ups that get more and more extreme as they continue talking. I opened up the box. The bird flew out. And the next night, my daughter was gone. Well, Erica, that's just... It's quite a stretch. Your logic, I'm sorry, it's... uh. A little all over the place, don't you think? Well, what do you think? You wanted to leave your husband. Okay, so why didn't he go? Why didn't you? 140 million people disappeared three years ago. Did you wish them away too? Because that's a lot of birds to bury, Erica. That's a flock of epic proportions. I get it. I felt the same as you. I... I felt responsible for losing my children. I thought it was my fault. But I moved past it. I evolved. Because that's pathetic. Again, that's where you see so much of the subtlety of what she's doing because the camera is practically like up their noses. I mean, it's just really (laughs) in on them tight. And you can wa- you watch both of them. I mean, they're both phenomenal in that scene, um, going back and forth. And then just when Regina King asks her, you know, what, what to the best of your recollection was the last thing that they said to you, which is ping-ponging a question back that she had asked her earlier, and just the way she just immediately crumbles. Her tears, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's amazing. Yeah, we interviewed Regina King last year, and she talked – when we asked her about that scene, she specifically was like Carrie Coon – just is so phenomenal she ups your game basically what you were saying like you you're playing against this person who is and regina king is regina king yeah she's pretty great too (laughs) (laughs) like that's pretty you know so yeah why don't we talk a little bit about who who the other really great performers were this year because before we get to best show let's shine a little light on you know who else? Who else has done a, a great job this year? You mentioned Matthew Reese, and and uh, I was going to mention Justin Thoreau. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Justin Thoreau was probably oh. my was probably my number two. I Interesting. Think. Yeah, because and actually for a lot of reasons that you chose Carrie Coon. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, and and the show, The Leftovers, has that. There, I think every show, like every movie has a particular style of acting that is appropriate for that story. Mm-hmm. And on The Leftovers, it's it's very big but also very small at the same time. Like it's a real – like it's a very melodramatic, grand sort of show with these big, 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 emotionally big situations. But um, the actors are playing them as subtly as they can and they have to because as you were saying, Jen, like – 
a lot of times the camera is like almost literally up their nose. <laughs> I mean, like the co- the close ups on that show are so close that it's like I I almost imagine I, sometimes I think like where where is the are the camera people like right over their shoulder <laughs> yeah. or something like that's how close they are. Sometimes. There was literally the scene with Regina King and Carrie Coon. I think it was literally over her shoulder because you could see Carrie Coon's hair. Yeah. And <laughs> it's focusing in on Regina. You know, like. Yeah. It's, yeah. But Justin Thoreau, like that, the scene in the Afterlife Hotel where he, he sings oh, yeah. Homeward Bound. I'm sitting in the railway station, got a ticket to my destination. On a tour of one night stands, my suitcase and guitar in hand. And every stop is neatly planned for a poet and a one-man band. Homeward bound, I wish I was homeward bound. Home, where my thoughts escaping, home, where my music's playing, home. Where my love lies waiting silently for me. Wow. That <laughs> his tears. It's he, great. He's it's one great. of the he, best TV criers. I he's think. he is like, and I will say, like, you know, with admiration, like easily the the most chiseled, great looking average guy <laughs> <He's> on TV. <laughs> I mean he is. It's like ridiculous, like how handsome and in shape this dude is. He's a is. thirst trap. Really it's is. ridiculous, <laughs> but you don't but you don't when you look at him you're not thinking like how many hours he must spend at the gym. You just accept that he's just this average dude. Right. He's just you a know? god. Right. right. Who's, who's also average. <laughs> right, exactly. Just like you and me. Yeah. You well know? it's funny that karaoke celebrities. Scene. <laughs> They're just like us. <laughs> that karaoke scene, um we talked about that actually when they were here for Vulture Fest, mm-hmm. um, and he he was not comfortable doing that. Like he and I think Damon Lindelof knew like he is not going to want to sing on camera. So let me just put him in this uncomfortable situation. Uh, and then we made him sit there and watch it with the whole crowd again, <laughs> as uncomfortable as possible. But I agree, like that's you know you you don't want him to be a good singer in that in that scene. That's not who he who he is, and it's also the fact that he's not singing beautifully is what makes it right. poignant. Right. It's, very he's singing emotionally yeah yeah on the comedy end of things um anthony anderson on blackish mm. was somebody that I, I thought about i feel like there should be a whole category for abc comedy parents yes <laughs> <laughs> because yes. they are all amazing <laughs> constance Wu, randall park uh yeah. tracy ellis Tr- ross. tracy ellis ross yeah yeah like i you know, I haven't kept up with the Goldbergs, but I hear Wendy McClendon. Wendy, Cuddy, yeah, yeah, that she's oh, she's pretty the best. amazing. She's yeah. the best. There's a moment in every episode where she says the f word and they bleep her, <laughs> and that's like that's like one of the highlights of my TV week. It's like when's she going to drop the f bomb? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I know this has been said, and enough Emmys have been given at this point that it's almost feels moot. But Julie Louis Dreyfus has been oh. incredible on Veep this season. Um, yeah. The episode where her mother dies, and just that whole the, the whole range of things she does in that one scene where she says goodbye to her mom, and then she finds out there's there's going to be you know enough ballots to have a recount in Nevada, and she's simultaneously like she's like cackling and like crying at the same time. It's just. It's kind of Nuts. terrifying to watch her. It is. <laughs> it's really amazing what she does from scene to scene on that show. Yeah. Um, Sherry Appleby is one of my favorites. I think the way she's 
able to, you know, she's constantly kind of on the verge of tears in this way where, you know, she's trying to keep it together. But she's also just such a badass at what she does. So, like, she's got this vulnerability, but she's also just, like, she's just you want to be her kind of because she's so good at her job. But Mm -hmm. I think there's this, like, type of character who I've really enjoyed watching, like Sherry Appleby, Viola Davis on How to Get Away with Murder, and, you know, even Riley Kogue on The Girlfriend Experience, where you're constantly... Riley Keough? Oh, Riley Keough? I thought it was. Okay, I don't know. Mm. I'll say that. Riley Keough. (laughs) (laughs) Where, I trust you, Matt. (laughs) Where you kind of have no idea what is going on in their minds. You have no... There's, like... You're constantly one like you, you're constantly wondering what is motivating them to make these decisions, and I find it fascinating to watch these women. It's partly character, you know, but it's also partly just the way they play them, where they're not giving you everything you want emotion wise. Should we talk about Sarah Paulson or no? Oh yeah, let's definitely talk about Sarah Paulson. Sarah Paulson, or, or as I call her, the Meryl Streep of Murphyland. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean she. You know, I think, and this is true of a lot of the performances on The People versus O.J. Simpson, but um, when you're playing a real person, as I'm sure we've all seen, it, it can be very tempting to just make it a, a matter of mimicry. Uh, and I felt like she captured sort of the essence of who Marsha Clark was, but wasn't <laughs> doing an imitation. She was really honestly making her a, a fuller uh, human being to me than mm-hmm. I previously was able to to grasp, um, certainly during the trial. That moment where she works out the uh, the logistics of the, the night of the killing in the bar. Right. With, yeah. you know, shot glasses and stuff. That was great. I think that cracker cop planted that glove and they all did what they had to do to prove that OJ did it. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Okay. Here's the crime scene, Bundy. Here's O.J.'s house. Okay. Furman made up his mind at Bundy that Simpson did it. Even though he had no idea if O.J. had an ironclad alibi that would then ruin Furman's career and land him in jail. Furman takes the glove at Bundy, makes sure it has Goldman and Nicole's DNA on it, jumps in the car with the other detectives, heads to Rockingham with it, where he gets into the Bronco, somehow getting all that evidence in it, including Simpson's blood. Even though the police didn't have Simpson's blood until the next day. Mm, mm, mm. Then he goes over the wall, plants the glove behind Cato's room. Then, with the help of the rest of his super-secret cabal of O.J.-hating racist cops, he starts getting everything just so. Just where it needs to be. Nicole and Ron and O.J.'s blood into O.J.'s bedroom. O.J.'s blood back to Bundy. Oh, and O.J.'s Broncos fibers back to Bundy, too. Oh, and they don't forget to get rid of the real killer's blood from the back gate. No, no, no. And replace it with O.J.'s blood. Then O.J.'s sock. They get that back to Bundy to pick up all the blood and then get that sucker right back to Rockingham, too. These guys are a well-oiled conspiracy machine, after all. 
All this during a time when everyone involved is under the most relentless media scrutiny in American history. And all this for an unknown killer. Maybe. No! <laughs> to me, that was the peak of her performance, that scene. And, and it says so much about the... The arrogance of the prosecution, too, that, like, look at me. I, you know, I've got this all figured out. Right, right. <laughs> well, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> On that show as well, you know, mm-hmm. you have, like, a ton of amazing performances. Courtney B. Vance. As, yes. Uh, Johnny Cochran. Uh, Sterling K. Brown as... Chris Darden. Chris Darden, yeah. yeah. Nathan Lane is really. <laughs> How could you? You you know appearance better than anyone. How could you on the day the verdict, this verdict, you arrive with strident black extremists? Jesus, Bob, it's a secure way to get in and out of what could explode into hell. Just get in the van or I'll tell them you're Jewish. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> that <was> great. <laughs> Nathan Lane. Uh, supposedly he ad-libbed a lot and they couldn't use oh, yeah? all of it. Yeah. Oh, really? That oh. was an ad-lib or I'll tell them you're Jewish. <laughs> <laughs> Let's reveal the best show. Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Ta-da! And, and I cannot... <laughs> you know, it was a struggle. It was a struggle to pick this show over so many other great shows. And, and there are a lot of them. There are a lot of great shows. And even if you rule out... Um, some of the anthology programs like um, American right. Crime Story and and uh, American Crime and Fargo. Which, um, just, just to clarify for listeners, we did not include anthology series in this calculation because we considered it kind of a different kind of format in terms of evaluating what a show does well when you have a limited amount of space versus these ongoing series that have to make – you know, as we were talking about in our last episode, these kind of more ambitious, long-form storytelling choices. Right, right. Um, and for me, it was – a lot of it came back to surprise, the constant sense of surprise. And Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is far and away, for me, the most surprising show in terms of the choices that it makes from moment to moment. And um, the musical numbers alone are just so wonderful. And they're all original. They don't do covers. It's not like Glee where they're lip syncing along with, um, you know, uh, a cover version of a song we all know. Like they're doing an original song, original music, original lyrics, original choreography, usually two two or more numbers per episode every single week. That in itself really gets my attention. But then on top of that, they've got this show that is the story. Uh, it's a it's a kind of a romantic comedy gone wrong. This story where this uh, this lawyer named Rebecca uh, relocates from New York City to West Covina, California, to try to get back together with her first serious boyfriend, Josh Chan, <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's a. Uh, like weirdly like Mr. Robot, it's a subjective kind of narrative. Like like a lot of this stuff, not all of it, but a lot of the story is taking place inside of Rebecca's head. And not just the musical numbers. Like a lot of this stuff is from her is is shaped by her perceptions and she's got the mentality of somebody who adores romantic comedies and musicals. And 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 so a lot of what's happening around her sort of takes on that flavor. But even if it wasn't a, a wonderful musical show with these original songs every week, and they're very high quality, like you never feel like it's just a placeholder, these songs. Mm-hmm. They're always like dramatically appropriate and they work on their own terms as songs. Um, you have this great ensemble story 
this kind of like crackpot our town with you know West Covina is like their version of Grover's Corner, <laughs> and 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 these characters who keep just passing, they they're crossing paths, they're getting involved in each other's lives, they're getting involved in each other's business in a very farcical comedic way, but also in a very serious way. And and the psychology of these characters revealed in the show is ultimately about psychology. Like it's as much a show about psychology as um, uh, Mad Men was or as BoJack Horseman still is, you know. And of all of the shows on TV, live action shows, this is the one that I think I feel like has – it exercises the most freedom in terms of its tone, the elasticity of its tone and the way that it goes from being very, very frivolous and light – to um, almost unwatchably painful mm-hmm. at times, and and then it goes uh, on to some yet some other third emotion, and it just keeps doing it. And, and I have never been able to correctly predict where the plot's going to go, and I know that that uh, shouldn't be a factor. Like it annoys me when people talk about shows in terms of guessing what's going to happen next, and they say like, "I called it, I totally called it," like, like <laughs> shut up, <laughs> you know. But on that level, that the, this show is always a step ahead of you as a viewer. And then on top of all of that, much has been made of, of uh, multicultural casting and what are what are the benefits of it, what are the difficulties of it. This is a show that has a more diverse cast in pretty much every respect than any other show on TV, like in terms of not just, you know, the gender balance, um, race, ethnicity, but also uh, body type and age. You know, mm-hmm. like they're really they're really covering a much wider swath than than uh, most other shows do, and it's especially apparent when you look at a lot of shows that are on commercial networks, where particularly the big ones, like the big commercial broadcast networks like NBC, where it seems like everybody on the show is under the age of forty, and they look like they spend six hours at the gym and another two at the hairdresser. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, like and and their idea of a homely person is somebody who would be like a ten if you knew them in life. <laughs> you know, it's like right. it's completely out of control. And and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has some extremely conventionally attractive people on it, but a lot of people who look like they could be in line with next to you at the supermarket, you know, very easily. And these same people, when they open their mouths, holy crap, can they sing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's another remarkable thing about the show is like this idea that there's this magnificent, uh, uh, um, almost otherworldly, beautiful quality inside of all of these characters. And, and every single character who appears on the show could potentially get a musical number and they all sing. Like they're not hiring somebody to sing for them. Mm-hmm. They're not lip syncing some pre-recorded material. They're all singing. You talk about in your piece – all the different styles of songs that we get on it's the show. Incre- it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. Unbelievable. They've got songs that sound like, you know, um, uh, like a, something out of something that could be from Guys and Dolls. They've got stuff, they've got a Candor and Ebb number. They've got like, they've got R&B. They've got like bubblegum pop. They've got... Um, a French movie. They've got, yeah. They've, <laughs> they've got, got the, the Jew, Jewish rap battle. Oh, the Jewish rap yeah. Movie, This is real deep beef from way back in the past. Deeper than I'll put a foot up in the crack of your ass. Come on, let's do this. Your little pals can witness how vicious this Westchester alpha bitch is. I'm straight up malicious, a verbal curb stomper. Since we were toddlers, I've studied every chink in your armor. And between your folks' divorce and that haircut on you, I'm really not sure which one's the bigger Shonda. That means disgrace. I'm translating for the goys. Our lifelines have been parallel like corduroys. But now we'll see whose bars will prevail in this beef up too hard as nails she bruised from scars. We've got a conflict of interest. I'm about to give Levine the business. Spitting venomous hate. Penetrating her defenses. It's, it's a, a jab battle. Oh, 
What? A Jewish American princess. Rap battle. Daughters of privilege. Fit mad flow. Financial offensive. Too bad, yo. Oh, snap. It's a Jap battle rap. <laughs> it's fantastic. And, and, and then just the way that they shoot these numbers, you mm-hmm. know, like they've got like – you know, they've got your sort of traditional like like hip hop music video kind of thing going, but then you'll get like a black and white Fred Astaire Ginger Rogers mm-hmm. number, and then you'll get like uh, something you know some, a little touch of Bob Fosse, and then there's the number which I think is for me it's the peak of the entire television year for me, which is Rebecca having contrived this ridiculous scheme to delete a text oh from God, Josh's that phone. That's <laughs> so like that's the that's good. a great that's one of the all-time <laughs> great episodes that episode. And um she gets to the end and her scheme has been exposed and Josh has found out that she's just just been completely bullshitting him the entire time. And it's like it's like some of her schemes are like out of I love Lucy. And and she is left by herself contemplating this gl- shattered glass on the floor of her house where you know, she's gotten her friend to throw a rock through the window, her friend's husband, actually. It's completely absurd. And it goes <laughs> into this number called You Ruined Everything. And it's a great on-the-nose title, but the song is really not on-the-nose at all. Like, it's not just a, a, her castigating herself for this particular scheme, but it's like she's taking stock of her life up to that point, everything about herself, she, and her self-loathing is so deep in this number that it's it's really hard to watch and it becomes even harder to watch because of the tone again tone is so important they stage it as if she's like a Barbara Streisand type diva performing for this adoring crowd in a stadium and she and it's basically a litany of self-hatred this <laughs> song and and in fact it's such a catchy song that i found myself singing it to myself <laughs> on the subway and I can only sing, you've ruined everything, you stupid. And I was like, the next word is bitch. And I can't be singing a song with that <laughs> refrain on the New York subway system because... I don't know. It doesn't stop anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it's like, it's such a catchy song. It's like, and so many of the songs on the show are so catchy. But if you sang the lyrics, people would think you were uh, off your meds, probably. I mean, like, it's like, it's really like... As she is. As she is, in fact, as she is, Yes. Um, uh, and it's really like these are like songs from the id. These songs, like yeah. they're like they're, they're the voice in your head that is telling you things that are maybe not good for you to hear. You know, the show has been talked about as a feminist show, and I think that it is. But it's also really good at kind of getting at how women hold themselves down in a lot of ways, yeah. and how you know we're we take in what the culture tells us and we kind of. Run it through it. our brain and internalize it. So it's this running loop through our heads telling us all these things that are bad about ourselves, even though we're constantly fighting with that where we're like, no, we shouldn't be thinking this way. But yet there we go again. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, two things. I want to go back to the Jewish rap battle for a quick second because <laughs> – so my husband is Jewish. He says Sheket Lavakasha all the time. I have never heard anyone say Sheket Lavakasha on TV, let alone in a song, <laughs> <laughs> let alone in a rap battle. So I was really blown away by that. But um, Matt, when you're talking about how the show is about psychology, which I think is a very great point and is very true, I also think it's really interesting as a commentary on nostalgia and we're a very nostalgia-focused culture. I am as guilty as anyone is of being overly nostalgic. But the whole idea that she's going back to this relationship she had in summer camp when she was in high school and idealizing it to the degree that she is and then realizing that, you know, maybe it isn't 
that's not healthy for her. Uh, I, I just feel like there's something really interesting about that desire for her to keep going back to something and not being able to like shake herself out of that. No, you know? no, it's and and this is a show that is very much about um, what romantic fantasies do to our expectations of actual relationships. And there are a number of shows that have attempted to get at that, and most recently I think The Mindy Project. But this is the fullest, most complete articulation of this idea, this deconstruction of the romantic fantasy. And it's not just Rebecca who's going through it. And and to some degree, all of these characters are are um, obsessed. They're all obsessed with this, this idealized fantasy of happily ever after and meeting your soulmate and all of that kind of stuff. And Rebecca's friend Paula, in fact, is uh, – she's another great character. She's, she's the, um, the best friend in the romantic comedy who just kind of lives for the, for the heroine. You know, she's mm-hmm. all about the heroine. But you quickly realize that it's like Rebecca is an addict and Paula is her enabler. And there's a point where Rebecca is off the chase and she's dating somebody else and Paula can't let go. Like she can't let go. It's like and, – and she later tells her that it's um, – she continued down that path because she felt like if they didn't have Josh in common that, that they wouldn't be friends anymore. And, and it's very much like it's a, it's, a, it's a very powerful scene and it's very much like a conversation that might occur between um, you know, a, a, an alcoholic who's decided to enter rehab and her friend who was an enabler. Mm-hmm. It's like if we don't have this, a, this addictive substance in common, then are we still going to be friends? Mm-hmm. And it's a real question that a lot of people face. And here it's not, you know, it's not like chemical intoxicants that are at issue. It's, it's, it's these, it's, as you were saying, nostalgia mm-hmm. and, and, and um, unrealistic expectations about, about what an adult relationship is like. And uh, all of the characters, to some degree, are dealing with that. And there's also this kind of like almost like a madman kind of thing happening, where people are trapped in roles that are the roles that society expects of them, but they're not necessarily the roles that they want. And Rebecca, it's not a shock at all at the end, but it feels so right when we learn that Rebecca, who is a lawyer, always really wanted to be a singer. You know, and it's not just because it's Rachel Bloom who is playing that role that we that it rings true. Because you know, these romantic comedies, as we see in these flashbacks, particularly the Disney films, uh, embedded these princess fantasies in her mind that she's never really been able to shake, and and that's a big part of what's messing her up too. It's really, really uh, to be such a sprightly, funny, kooky kind of silly, ridiculous show. Um, it's a really serious show at the same time, and it's not easy to be all those things. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage to sing a song about self-indulgent, self-loathing, Miss Rebecca Bunch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be back here, even though I'm here singing this song a lot. Well, Rebecca, you've done it now. Yeah, you guys know this one. Karma's come to tap you on the shoulder. All that lying that's been festering, plus breaking and entering, is coming now to crush you like a boulder. You're 
and lose some weight. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mami and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellafant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz. You can reach me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney, and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. You stupid.